Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we bring you a bonus episode, a recording of a seminar from Tabletop Gaming Live, an event which took place at Alexandra Palace. Yes, we joined Mike Mason of Chaosium for a discussion which he titled Calling Cthulhu, which is basically just a question and answer session about Call of Cthulhu. Um, so if you're interested in hearing about things that are in the works, uh, about some of the techniques that we use to run the game, or you know, whatever else it was that the audience wanted to hear from us, well, you're in the right place. You may notice a distinct absence of myself. That's because I wasn't there. That, that's a good reason for not being on the recording. Precisely. Yeah. And you'll also notice that the sound quality is somewhat different because this was recorded in a big hall in Alexandra Palace. Hope you enjoy the show. And if you want to find out more, you can go to our website at blasphemoustomes.com. Hello. Thank you all for coming. Our next talk is from the team behind the fantastic Lovecraftian RPG, Call of Cthulhu. I'll allow them to introduce themselves, but they're going to be talking about, if you've never played before, how you can jump in. If you've played before, what you can do to make your sessions even better and sort of what's coming up and what's new for the RPG. So I'll hand it over to the team. Thanks, guys. Hello. Can you hear me? Hello. I'm, uh, I'm Mike Mason. Uh, I'm the uh, line editor for Call of Cthulhu at Chaosium. And today I'm joined with two, uh, two uh, writers uh, and also podcasters uh, for, who uh, do a fair bit uh, on the Call of Cthulhu line. To my right is... Hi, I'm Scott Dalwood. Uh, I've done a bunch of freelance writing for Chaosium, uh, worked on a, a number of recent publications, and along with Paul on the other side there, I'm one of the hosts of the Good Friends of Jackson Elias podcast, wherein we talk about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, weird fiction, and all the other stuff that influences our gaming lives. And on my left tentacle is... <laughs> Hello, I'm Paul Fricker. Uh, I work with Mike here on the latest edition of Call of Cthulhu role-playing game and various supplements for it. So, um, the seminar is kind of hearing the Call of Cthulhu. Uh, have you heard the call? Uh, so, that's going to be my first question to you. Uh, I'd like to kind of know whether you already play Call of Cthulhu. Uh, so, yeah, do you already play Call of Cthulhu? If you do, put your hands up. Okay, so a reasonable number of you. Uh, and of the, those of you who didn't put your hand up, um, have you role-played before? Uh, uh, so um, if you had, didn't put your hand up before, put your hand up if you do role-play already or you have role-played. Okay, so that's kind of balancing out. Okay, so finally, has somebody who has never played Call of Cthulhu and somebody that's not really role-played before, if there's any of you, could you put your hand up? Hey, it's you. Hi. Hi. Well, you're very welcome. Hi. Um, so, okay. So we're here to sort of talk a little bit about Call of Cthulhu, uh, but we will be led by yourself. So we're very happy to take questions. If you've got a question or anything you'd like to know about, please raise your hand and uh, we'll try and answer that. But uh, to start off, uh, we did sort of talk about that we would talk about um, writing for Call of Cthulhu uh, and how we go about it. Uh, and um, but maybe maybe we should take a step back from that. And um, Scott, would you like tell us about you know why do you like Call of Cthulhu? 
Um, I like Call of Cthulhu because I've been a horror fan ever since I was a kid. And when I got into role-playing games, oh gosh, um, a long, long time ago, uh, there was only one horror role-playing game, the first one on the market, all the way back in 1981, and that was Call of Cthulhu. And so, obviously, I, I gravitated towards that, and it, it sort of took over my life after that in, in insidious ways. Um, Paul, so what about, you know, why, why is Call of Cthulhu the game that, you know, you've particularly kind of dedicated your time to in terms of writing for, playing for, running the game at conventions? Why, why Call of Cthulhu? I think one of the appeals of Call of Cthulhu is that you play a regular person. So it's very easy to put yourself in the shoes of your character that you're playing in the game. It can be set in the modern day, in which case it's really easy to get into, or perhaps in a period setting like the 1920s. But one of the things that appeals to me in terms of writing is that you can take pretty much any premise for a horror film or horror story, or not even necessarily horror, but kind of weird fiction or strange things going on, and mold it into a Call of Cthulhu game. So it's very flexible in terms of content. Okay, so um, what about this? I, so I hear that you can play Call of Cthulhu in two ways. You can kind of play it as like a one-night game of like a you know, night of horror, like a horror film. In between, maybe you're playing a regular game of you know, a different system or you board game or something, and uh, maybe you want to change, you play Call of Cthulhu that way. Um, but you can also play it as like an ongoing campaign, as kind of like your main game. What, what do you do, Scott? Well, I do both. But my preference has usually been for the one-shots, for the single night of play, because I, I think it's for much the same reason as you tend to get a lot more horror short stories than you do novels, uh, in that horror is at its most horrifying, its most intense, when it's a short, sharp shock. And I think with a, a Call of Cthulhu one-shot, you can create an intense, nasty experience that people will remember. I mean, that's not to say that you can't with a horror, uh, with a campaign rather, but the campaigns are much more kind of slow burn things with ebbs and flows. Whereas with a one-shot, you can, you know, either just ratchet up the tension, you know, fairly fast, or just go for the jugular from the outset. Yeah, but surely, surely though, if you're playing a campaign, even though with that slow burn, that means the impact, you know, when, when the final kind of revelations come and, and you finally find out what's going on and, and you have to spend all this time piecing all these disparate clues together to really fathom what's going on. Surely the horror and the, the impact is even more intense. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Paul? No, I would say um, campaigns can be really good. So one of my favorites was playing a game called Beyond the Mountains of Madness. Um, and that's set in the Antarctic, so you're totally immersed in this freezing cold environment, which H.P. Lovecraft wrote a story in, and then this campaign picks that up and goes, you know, kind of what if a party returned to that environment and what things might they find? So it builds on a, a story by H.P. Lovecraft. And we played that game for on and off for the best part of a year. And one of the lovely things about that is that you get so... Um, embedded in your character they almost become like a real person to you and you know you follow their story and their fate and it's a horror story so deaths do occur but you're kind of invested in that so 
that's all part of the fun. So is it, is it an investment in the character, but also because you're playing that kind of extended storyline, that extended campaign, there's a certain level of investment in the actual narrative of the story, the actual plot and the engagement, would you say? Yeah, very much so, yeah. Yeah, and that feeling of period and setting and with a, with a longer story, you can get more into that. Cool. I mean, interestingly, almost to segue into... Um, we've got the um, Masks of Nilathotep uh, Call of Cthulhu campaign coming out um, very soon. Well, it's available now in PDF, but the actual print book uh, books of the, the campaign are coming out. Now, obviously, would you like to... Uh, make, Paul, would you want to talk about, you know, what is Masks and what, you know, why is it a famous kind of campaign in that regard? Well, I think it's one of the early ones written in the 1980s that, as Mike was saying, we've just revamped for the new edition and uh, expanded. And it set in the 1920s in this classic uh, era of which Call of Cthulhu uses. And it starts off in New York uh, with, well, actually, no, it's, there's a, there's a, we've added a bit on before that <laughs> well, now. Well, that's coming on that. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, and... As with many of these campaigns, it starts off fairly small and you start off with a, you know, a, a, a kind of local investigation which slowly reveals a bigger conspiracy and you might travel abroad and go to other countries and slowly you're kind of peeling away layers of the onion and finding more and more inside uh, and you know, greater horrors. But the greater horror is that it's not just local, it's spanning the whole world. Well, it, 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 how many countries does it cover? It covers, you know, what we start, we start in Peru, more on that in a moment. Um, America, uh, Britain. Britain, London, um, Egypt. Egypt, Africa, Australia, and Shanghai. Yep. So what's that? That's seven. Uh, seven, I think. Seven, okay. seven adventures. Uh, well, seven so it's the classic, chapters, yeah. the classic world-spanning campaign. Uh, but we, you know, we mentioned Peru, which is a, so Scott, you, you were heavily involved in the uh, creation of the, the new prologue to the campaign, which is yeah. set in Peru. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and about sure. you know, how we approached you know, revising the new edition? Well, one of, the, um, one of the, the key points of Masks of Nealthotep is that to start out with, you're all friends of this, this writer by the name of Jackson Elias. And he has, has called you to his aid to help with this investigation where he's got a little bit out of his depth. But it's you know, been not, not quite a stumbling block, but perhaps something that's caused a few groups a little trouble. That you start out being told that you're, you have this history with Jackson Elias, but you're, you're, the characters, or rather the players, haven't necessarily played in a game that involves him before. So when, when it came to revising uh, Masks of Nealthotep, we decided that we wanted to put an introductory uh, chapter in there where the characters met Jackson Elias for the first time, where they bonded with him, where perhaps you know, he, he, he saved their bacon a few times or, or at least provided valuable help. And so when they get the call to come and help him, they've got a reason to and they've got some degree of emotional attachment. So in terms of... Um Mask, I mean, it's, a, it's an old campaign. It was released back in 1985. Five, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, at the time, it uh, set the mold and kind of um, set the mold for kind of campaigns across, well, then across the entirety of role-playing, really. I mean, it was the first one that really kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of this box set with multiple kind of um, locations, 
all spreading across this one kind of arcing narrative um, and, uh, you know, driving towards this you know, epic conclusion. It kind of set the mold for campaigns and, you know, won many awards and things like that. But and so a lot of people have kind of played, you know, played it over the years. And there's obviously a lot of people that still haven't. And there's a lot of people that maybe played it when they were younger, when it first came out, that kind of thinking, well, maybe we'll revisit that, you know, with the new edition coming out. What's kind of interesting is everyone's got, you know, who've, who've played the campaign in the past, I've got kind of like a war story of a, you know, a favorite scene or favorite character or an incident that happened in the game that they played. Is, is there something like that for you, Paul? Is there a favorite kind of, you know, uh, remem remembrance you have of playing masks or maybe, you know, in, in working on the new edition, is there a particular scene that sort of stood out for you when you were kind of writing it maybe? Are we allowed to give spoilers here? Well, I guess, you know, <coughs> semi-spoiler without giving too much away, you know. Okay, I guess one of the most evocative parts for me was the Egypt chapter uh, when I played that the first time uh, as a player, not as a, as a GM. Um, but there's um, just, just some of the things down under the pyramids. It's, yeah, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty epic in terms of what you can find underneath the pyramids. There are, and there's some very deadly things down there. <laughs> so there are, I mean... We, you, don't, we, you don't want to be messing around with water. With, with water, water. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's a boat on the on the this little pool, and then these monsters appeared at the other end of the passage, and we're like, okay, we're running. So we run, and one of the, my friends has this great idea: I'll jump on that lake on the on sorry on the boat because that'll be safe. But unbeknownst to him, it's not a lake of water; it's leeches. <laughs> and the great thing about role playing games is we get to roll dice, which add a random element. And of course, he fails the roll, misses the boat, falls in the leeches. And that's the point we discover it's not water, it's leeches. <laughs> um, and I think that's one of the great appeals of RPGs for those that you know, aren't RPG players, is, is the, the random elements that the dice bring to the game and help direct the story in unexpected directions. Yes, they're normally... Um uh, kind of followed by a kind of oh from the players around the table. Sometimes, sometimes a cheer that you know rolled a really well or, or maybe a really cry. successful. Oh, no. But yes. there tends to be just as much joy when somebody rolls a terrible roll because that's going to make something interesting happen as well. Often more interesting. Yes, normally. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Scott? Is there a particular kind of scene or experience? Yeah. Or? Well, I mean, one thing we haven't really mentioned so far is that Masks is fundamentally a very pulpy campaign. It owes a lot in its, its, um, in its feel to you know, the, the old 1930s pulps and, oh, yeah, to things like Indiana Jones. And so as a result, you know, even, even if you're not playing using Pulp Cthulhu, the characters tend to be larger than life and, you know, behave in very, heroic or eccentric fashions and there, there was a friend of mine when I ran it originally back in the mid 80s who decided uh, he'd played a lot of RuneQuest before and he'd, you know, which is a, a very similar set of mechanics and he discovered how effective armour was so he decided he wanted to call a Cthulhu investigator who wore armour so he, he created a, a, a professor of Japanese history whose affectation was that he had a suit of samurai armour and he would just wander around everywhere in this bloody suit of armor. And it saved him from so many things. You know, um, you know cultists shooting him, knife wounds, you know, fights with, with relatively small monsters. Towards the end of the campaign, you come across a creature which is not relatively small, which is about the size of a subway car. 
And he decided that he was going to stand this thing down. Uh, you know, his armor had saved him so far. And you know, th there isn't enough armor in the world to save you from that. And it, it just sort of, I, I think the phrase I ended up using was spam in a can. Uh, they, they, you know, there were just bits of him leaking out of this flat armor afterwards. And uh, I, I don't think he was very happy about it, but it, it, it certainly cheered me up. I, I, had a, um, I had a player, I think it was last year, I was running a campaign at home. And um, very occasionally in Call of Cthulhu, uh, those of you that have already played the game know, know this, that occasionally you can find these kind of old tomes of lore, these old kind of magical books, these grimoires that may contain spells. And in Call of Cthulhu, they're not spells like you find in, uh, in a game like uh, Dungeons & Dragons, uh, where, where the spells are kind of useful. Uh, the spells in Call of Cthulhu tend to be... They, they might seem to be useful, but they often have a, a terrible kind of downside to them if you try to cast them. Um, but this player had found this book, and in the, in the book was this wonderful, very kind of powerful spell called Elder Sign, which allows you to kind of, you know, create this kind of symbol that banishes, you know, these, uh, these hideous monsters away. So rather, and, and most of the times with this spell, what people do, will put that over like a, on a door or something so to stop a monster going through that kind of passageway. But he thought better than that. He thought, well, if I cast this spell onto a door and then unbolt the door and carry the door around, <laughs> I've got this kind of shield and, and, and I think it's going to be fine. Of course, in due progress, he learned that, you know, shields are fine, but you can always go around the back of them and still eat the person holding it because the elder sign wasn't on him. The but the door survived, the door. right? The door was fine. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he wasn't quite so much, but there you go. Uh, but, <laughs> but there you are. So um, that was kind of a little bit about Mask and Athletech, which is coming out fairly soon. But does anyone... Um, we'll take a little pause. Is there any um, burning questions that anyone has at this point? Yes, hi. Uh, we've got a microphone. Yeah. So. Why, how in particular does... As Mo how do you actually come up with these ideas? How were they here embedded in the first place? I didn't I, so, I, I'm, I'm sorry, this, I, I, there's a lot of background noise and we couldn't quite hear you. Could, could, could you speak directly into the microphone? Well... <laughs> Thanks. That's better, that's better. <laughs> that, that's much better, thank you. Yeah. How do you come up with these ideas? Ooh, oh, <laughs> how do we come up with the ideas? Well, there's a guy in Coventry... Uh, if you put five pounds in an envelope and send it to him, he sends you an idea. But seriously, um, we look at we, we get ideas from all everywhere. Um, we you know we we we're all we're all kind of big readers, and we we love watching films as well. Um, and you know we like watching sci-fi films, and we like watching horror films, and, and anything like that. Um, and anytime you're watching something, or you're reading a book, or watching a TV series ideas form you think oh that's cool you may not be you may not be taking that idea exactly as they've used it in that you know in that film or tv series but it might inspire you to think well well that would be really cool i mean have you got any examples well i'd say that often it just starts with like the seed of an idea it's like what if such and such um so it's just like one little spark of an idea and you start expanding on that and then maybe that spark doesn't actually end up in the finished product but it's just a, a seed of an idea. You know, what if they were... I don't know, I'm trying to think of one that we've okay, done. Here's an example. Here's an idea that you had. I don't think you've actually done anything with it yet. It's still percolating in your head after a few years. But I think one day you turned to me and you said something like, 
had this idea about what if there were like, you know, in your house, there was like a load of people that lived in the walls. And that was the idea. And then, and then we, we talked about, what does that mean? Do you mean like a mirror of the people living in the house? This kind yeah. of dark shadow house that exists in parallel to yours. I mean, and that was just something that came in your head. And I don't know what inspired it, but I mean, you know, then we talked about it and I don't, think, I, don't, I don't know if you actually ever used it or not. No, I think if you, I mean, I can imagine that idea came from watching, I don't know, David Lynch films or something like that. But if you, even if you start off with an idea that is clearly stolen from a film or a book or a story, once you've developed it away from that and done your own thing it with it... It becomes your own. You, you, you actually add some creativity to it, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I think so. What, what about you, Scott? Where did you get your ideas from? I, similarly to the two of you, I mean, it's just everything I, I read or watch. Um, I, the, the, the other thing that, that helps a lot is um, kind of reading um, books on history or articles... Um, I, I, I get a lot of inspiration from, from looking at sort of interesting places or interesting characters from history or interesting events and then trying to put a horror spin on those. Um, so, you know, for, for example, I saw a documentary uh, a while back on a, an island off the coast of Brazil called Snake Island, which is just absolutely covered in, in venomous vipers. Um, and I just thought, I've got to set something there. Um, and, and so something snowballed out of that. Uh, other times, yeah, I, mean, I watched a documentary on Bobby Fischer, uh, the, the, the chess prodigy, and about the mental health problems he'd had later in life and some of the conspiracy theories and delusions that he had and just sort of started thinking, what if these were real? Um, sure. I mean, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you want to actually play through that idea about what happens on Snake Island then it's actually one of the, you know, one of the kind of concluding chapters of the, the Pulp Cthulhu campaign called The Two-Headed Serpent. So, uh, yeah, if you want to see what happens when you visit a, an island infested with highly deadly uh, venomous uh, snakes, um, that's the one to go for, yeah? Yeah. There you go. Uh, do we have any other questions? Microphone is on its way. Hi. Um, I write short stories and I always find one of the best inspirations sometimes is people watching um, I mean I, I remember some years ago I was out working in Brussels and I was sitting in a McDonald's and I saw a police car drawing to, to buy a takeaway never occurred to me before that police cars on their brakes go into McDonald's to buy takeaways and it was, I always found that those sort of people watching scenarios often spin off ideas for things that you know you might see someone sitting in a cafe looking a bit you know, a bit nervous or something like that, and you start working in your head sort of what is the problem in, in that's going on in their life that's spawning that. And I think quite often those sort of things can actually lead to quite interesting sort of scenarios building up uh, over time. I think often just those sort of life experiences actually feed quite well into things. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah life experience, definitely. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's, you know, you can be... You just see a, see a house as you go by in a car or on a bus, and, you, and it just sparks me. Like, well, what if, what if I'd looked up and there was some strange face looking at me out from the top window or whatever it may be? Or, you know, it, it could be all sorts of things. But, yeah, absolutely, you yeah. Know, real life is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the process of, uh, you know, of writing tends to involve cannibalizing your own life and the lives of the people around you. Um, I, I remember reading an interview with Grant Morrison many years back, 
where he was talking about, you know, one of the worst days of his life where it was a cat he'd had for a long time who he was very attached to, was, was, you know, gravely ill and having to take it off to the vet and have it put down. And he was saying that, you know, the whole time there was a part, you know, just this voice in the back of his mind saying, yeah, but think of all the story ideas you can get from this. And yeah, it happens. Sure. We had, we had a few other hands up at that point. Um, with jaded players and um, people who are, spend a, a large amount of their time uh, watching horror movies, TV, uh, uh, TV series and adventures, um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you go about instilling fear, um, <laughs> existential fear especially, into games where people are expecting to be the heroes, the protagonists? Was the question, how do we instill fear? In the, okay. Um, this is one of the things with it being a horror role-playing game. A part of it, not always, but can be about instilling that sense of, of fear into the, into the game. Now, it can just play on horror tropes, which can just be, yeah, everybody can just be laughing and it can be fun. As with a number of horror films, they can, be, they can feature comedy purposefully or, or not. Um, but also sometimes, depending on the game, depending on the players and the GM, you do want to build an atmosphere of something frightening going on. And my main resource for that is thinking what frightens me um, and just trying to embody that in the, in the storytelling but not to try and have that tone all the way through the game. Um, sometimes we'll be laughing and joking, but you know, then they go down in the cellar or whatever, and maybe somebody's on their own, and I can just drop the tone and just whisper, you know, you feel something cold on your shoulder. And it, you know, I can't invoke that in front of a big audience, but um, often I feel a bit of a chill myself, and I'm kind of frightening myself. It's just like when you sat around the campfire or whatever telling spooky stories if you've ever done that and the lights I think having low lighting helps as well because it just frees your imagination um, so that's what my advice would be think what would scare you and try and portray it yeah and absolutely don't be hard on yourself definitely as Paul has just said one of the one of the kind of you know things that can hold people back is that thing I've got to be scary all the time this game's got to be like you know people are going to run screaming from my gaming table it's not actually about that it's about having fun at the gaming table and part of that fun with a game like Call of Cthulhu is occasionally it, it, it's kind of cool to be scared um, but like most horror films you know you don't, we don't all get we're not all sat terrified when we watch a horror film there may be instances for you know a few seconds where you get, you get spooked or you you're scared or whatever it may be and that's the same kind of thing with these kind of games. Is that you, you, may, you may go entire sessions where actually you're just kind of following, you're engrossed in the story, in the mystery, and, uh, and then there's occasions of comedy. And then you, you get to the end and you go, oh, no, I, I didn't see that coming because there's a twist. And actually that's the kind of the horror in it. It just depends on the game. And often I think those scariest bits are just improvised in the moment, I would sure. say. We had a... Um, oh, actually... Sorry, yeah, yeah, if yeah, you don't yeah. mind. Um, sorry, I'll just chip in on that. Uh, I, I think also, certainly when you're dealing with hardcore horror fans, I, 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 a lot of the, the long-time horror fans I know, you know, still love watching horror films, you know, watch loads of them, but aren't scared by them. And 
you know, that doesn't stop us watching horror films. You know, I, I, I have been scared by very few horror films in my adult life. I still watch way too many of them. Um, and it's not because I'm looking to be scared. It's because there's something about the atmosphere and the ideas and the imagery uh, and, and just the way the story's developed that still speaks to me and appeals to me. And I think you get a lot of that with role-playing games. I think it's comparatively difficult to scare someone in an RPG session. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't engage the part of them that loves horror. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Hello. Hi. Um, talking about new editions, Call of Cthulhu's been around for a long time now, and the source material is fairly static. Um, what's new in the latest iteration of Call of Cthulhu than, say, fourth or fifth edition? Sure. So the, the question there was that Call of Cthulhu, um, well, basically it was released back in around 1981. So it's a game that's been in existence well over 35 years. Um, and uh, recently, uh, what, about three years ago or so, um, we released what's called the seventh edition, the new edition of Call of Cthulhu. Um, so the question was kind of like, well, how is it different? Is it, is it, you know, is it the same old game? What, you know, what's different, I guess? Um, which is a good question to ask, because all three of us worked on the new edition. Um, so, um, uh, Scott, do you want to kick off with... How do you see what's different about 7th edition? Well, it's still fundamentally the same game that's been around since the, the, the early 80s. Um, what Mike and Paul did was they rewrote all the text in it to try to make it more accessible to a modern audience. Uh, you know, I, I, I edited it, and one thing that I sort of insisted on was lots more examples of play to try to make it easier for people like me who learn more from example than from reading rules. Um, but you know, in terms of the gameplay, I, there's a, you know, a few new mechanics, a few new twists in there. Some bits have been simplified. Um, I think things like combat you know, now runs a lot smoother. There's less of that you know, swing-miss, 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 swing-miss uh, thing that dogs a lot of older games. Um, but yeah, it's, it's still Call of Cthulhu. What, what would you, what's your take, Paul? Uh, well, I'll give one illustration, I guess, the pushed roll. Uh, so in lots of role-playing games, you have a thing where you have a skill roll. So you try and do something, you make a skill roll, and you pass or fail. <coughs> now, when you fail, it's like with some things, yep, you kind of move on. But with some things, it's like, well, can't I try again? You know, I'm trying to just take something as mundane as trying to, uh, you're trapped in the cellar, and there's the, the hatch is shut above your head, and you're trying to push it open. You make your skill roll and you fail. So, okay, well, can't we try again? Can't we try harder? So now there's this thing called a pushed roll, whereby you get to roll your, whereby you get to say what you're going to do to, to, to try harder. So maybe you're, you know, you're, you're getting up the ladder and putting your shoulder against it and really pushing hard. And you get to roll a second time, but this time you know that you're putting something on the line. You're pushing the roll. And if you fail, there's a consequence. So the consequence can be something such as, uh, you know, you, so you, if you fail that, your feet slip on the ladder and you fall down and you, you know, you take damage as you hit the cellar floor. Or if there's, um, you know, maybe you, you push against the, the hatch, you fail it, it kind of goes up and then it slams and then you hear a car arriving outside and footsteps arriving in the, in the, in the old cabin above you. So it's something that kind of pushes not just the skill roll, but it pushes the, the narrative forwards. And that's very much the intention of that, that pushed roll. 
So in a sense, that also that kind of gives the players a little bit more agency. That whereas it, before it was kind of you know pass fail with a role. One of the other things we added into that whole concept of skill roles with Call of Cthulhu is levels of degree or degrees of success or difficulty. So actually, rather than uh, it just being a straight pass or fail these days, we've added degrees of uh, success and difficulty. Where if you roll really, really well, um, that that will actually pay off for you. Equally, um, you know, if you roll really, really badly, um, things may be slightly worse. But um, that's another way of looking at it, which helps with things like combat, streamlines combat, opposed roles, that kind of thing. But the other thing I'd like to pick on is the um, is whether you believe in the Cthulhu mythos or not in the game. Obviously, the game's premise is that uh, there's a, a kind of a hidden reality to the cosmos with these great kind of alien kind of beings that kind of, you know, um, look down on, you know, humanity like ants. And when you realize that, then obviously, you know, you, it's very difficult to comprehend and you, you might, you know, might run off crazed and mad. Um, but uh, when you read the kind of original kind of fiction the game's based off, you get a lot of kind of professors in dusty libraries who've read all these ancient tomes about the realities of the universe, but they don't really believe it because it's just in a book. It's what somebody said is the reality. It's a story. So we added that concept into the game, whereas you know you may not you may not be a believer, and so you can read all these kind of tomes of lore about all this kind of secret information and learn it all, but you treat it like a story. You know, it's like any other book. It's a it's a it's a it's a particular belief system that you understand somebody's written about, but you don't necessarily believe yourself. But obviously, in the game, is when you're confronted by the reality of the Cthulhu myth. So you've read all about these these fishmen that live under the sea, but that's just, they're just legends and story. I don't believe them, but I know all about them. But when you go to the beach and, and then a fishman comes up to you and tries to eat you, then suddenly it all becomes real. And, and, and so you're suddenly hit with all the learning you've had and, um, and you know, you suddenly, a whole weight of it and the reality comes and you're no longer a believer. So we've got that kind of little kind of differentiation in there, I guess. Also, one more thing about the new edition. Can I just ask the audience, who likes maths? Put your hand up if you like maths. Okay, so, I mean, there's some maths in there to keep you guys happy, all right? But with the new edition, we very much made it so that that's all done up front. So you've got your character sheet with your, character, your player character on it, and there's a whole bunch of numbers on there, and you figure those, you know, at the start. But then when you're actually playing the game, you're rolling dice, but you're just rolling it and trying to get under a number that's on your sheet. So you're not having to do lots of calculations and figuring out. Well, if you, you really, really hate maths, you don't even have to do any because you, you do is download <laughs> the, uh, the PDF character sheet for Call of Cthulhu from the chaosium.com website. And it's inbuilt that it does all the maths for you. So you enter one number and it works out all the numbers for you, which is one I use. And as no, no maths whatsoever. And as a team, we worked all right, I think, because I like maths and Matt, Mike doesn't oh, like I maths. I hate maths. <laughs> so it's a good combination. So uh, there you go. What about you? Do you like maths, Scott? Um, I study maths at university, so no. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have uh, any other questions at this point? Um, I was just wondering, how do you handle separation of the party one of the things I've always found in playing is that you'll always get one guy that says oh I'm going off to the university to read some books for three days and two guys go oh I'm going to go to the house to investigate for two hours 
and somebody else that goes and does something else. And this inevitably means that you get two players that are spending three hours of game time investigating the house and somebody else that just has to make one library roll and somebody else that just has to do something else. And that's, it's, it's part of the game, the separation of the party, but in terms of running a game, it can become difficult to actually keep that level of interest amongst the players. So I was just wondering, how, how do you see that to be something that's handled in the game? Okay, so the question's about when you've got a group of players as a kind of a party in the game, um, how do you handle when they all split off to go and look at different things? Which, um, you know, as a shorthand is, is joy to any keeper's ears in Call of Cthulhu. But Scott, what about you? Yeah, I, I love it when parties split up. I, you know, for a start, it makes them much more vulnerable. But it's also, I, I don't know, it kind of beggars my sense of, of disbelief slightly when you get a group of, of five disparate people just turning up at people's houses and, and talking to one NPC and you sort of gang up on them in conversation. But so, so yeah, I, I'm all for groups splitting up. And the way I handle it um, is... By, I, I think of it like a film or a TV series where you know, I, I, I'm the editor and I'm cutting between scenes the whole time. So I don't wait for one scene to, to play out entirely. So, you know, if you've got a, you know, say a couple of people who've gone off to, you know, talk to the, the, the Lord of the Manor, um, and, you know, someone else who's gone down to the church to, you know, look at uh, church records, and, you know, someone else who's, who's, you know, poking around the old mill or something like that, then, yeah, I'll, I'll try to make sure, A, that there are things that are happening in all those places. That, you know, it's not just one role. And B, that, you know, I, I'll, I'll jump between them on mini cliffhangers. I'll get to the point where, you know, say, you know, someone is poking around the old mill and, you know, they, they've, they've perhaps just made their spot hit and roll. They've noticed, um, you know, so some human remains, some very old human remains in the corner covered with dust. Um, and they're, they're, you know, beginning to investigate, trying to work out what happened to this person. And that's the point at which they hear a floorboard creaking behind them. So at that point, I'll cut to another player. So you're uh, building it almost like, building each scene to a kind of a cliffhanger and then moving to the next scene, yeah. coming back and yeah. a kind of cliffhanger to cliffhanger almost. Yes. Yeah, and, that, that, and, and if you keep those, those cuts fairly short, I mean, you know, keep it to a few minutes per person, then you, know, you, you stop anyone getting too bored. Yeah, I mean, that, that's ultimately the big thing about ensuring that with a group of, you know, say you've got up to four to six players and yourself running the game, and if you all split up, is ensuring that really what the trick is is ensuring that one of those persons isn't sat there for an hour doing nothing and he's getting bored. Yeah. So that, that kind of cutting between the different players and the scenes just ensures that everyone is getting an equal part of the game, really equal part of the fun. Well, do, you, do you have any particular tips, Paul? I'd say as the person running the game, as the keeper in Call of Cthulhu, you, there's two things going on. One is the fiction in the game and, one, and the other is the people sat, the real people <laughs> sat around your table. And as keeper, you can kind of speak on either level. So sometimes I would say step out of the, the fiction and talk to the players. And if they are, if you feel they're splitting up too much and you feel some people are going to get left out for a long time just because you know the scenario you're running, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying to them, look, you, you could go off and do that thing on your own, but actually, you know, in terms of the game, it might be better if you join, you know, Sue and, and go to the library because um, I don't want to leave you out for ages. So, you know, I think that's okay to do that sometimes. Don't be afraid to, to do that. You know, you just because the players say they want to all go off and do separate things 
doesn't mean that you can't give them a bit of guidance sometimes. Absolutely. We have another question here. Um, hi. Um, I've been playing Call of Cthulhu on and off uh, for, for years, but it's been about 15 years since I've run a campaign. So do you have any hints or tips for either new or returning players in terms of how to handle running something like the Mask of Nia, now you know, a really big sort of campaign? Okay. Paul, do you want to kick this one off first, Paul? Uh, so for returning players, um, I think... I think, well, let me address that. If you're, if you're new to the game, then there's uh, the quick start rules. So if you want to get up to speed with the new edition, I would say get the quick start rules. And also, soon to be released uh, before Christmas this year, there'll be a uh, starter box set. Yes, which, uh, we, we can talk more about that in a minute if you like. Sure thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's a good way of kind of getting into the, the new rules. Uh, there are also videos online, uh, which you can find, which give uh, advice on how to run the game. There are, there are podcasts, and there are also um, actual play podcasts online as well. So you can kind of get a feel of um, how the game runs. So if you're going to pick up a scenario or whatever, if you have a search online, you can probably find versions of it that you can actually listen to, and that gives you a good feel for how that game might run. Obviously, with your players, it might go quite differently, but at least, you know, you get a, a good handle on how it went for somebody else. Yeah, I'm, I'm just quickly looking up to make sure I got the name right, but in terms of one of the actual plays, we've actually got one um, that's actually running at the moment uh, with the Encounter Roleplay on YouTube. Um, who are actually running through the, the Master of Nathak Tap campaign. So if you were going to run it, then why wouldn't you watch another group, you know, in advance what, running it to get ideas, see what they did, see how the players handled it. Um, and also by doing that, you kind of by osmosis, kind of just refreshing yourself on the rules at the same time. So that's a really cool way to do it. I'd certainly recommend it. Yeah, along those lines as well, I mean, there's a, a chap who does a YouTube channel um, called uh, Seth Skorikowski, um, who does reviews of, um, well, you know, not just Call of Cthulhu, but a lot of role-playing games and, and particularly role-playing game scenarios. And what he does is quite good. I mean, he, he talks to you not just through his opinions, but his experiences of running them, things that he found worked and didn't work for him, things that he might have changed. And even if you don't agree with, with him, um, he, he tends to give a lot of really good insights. Um, he hasn't tackled masks yet, but he's been doing that for the two-headed serpent. And, yeah, certainly, you know, we, each, each time he reviews the chapter, I find myself sitting there afterwards thinking, oh, I wish I'd thought of that at the time. I mean, it's probably, I think Scott kind of says it, but it's worth kind of uh, reinforcing the fact with Seth's videos. Uh, you know, he calls them review videos, and he's one, of the, he's one of the reviewers that will only review a product in terms of role-playing that he's actually played or run himself, rather than just, a, a, you know, I've read it and then review it. So I think that's quite an important distinction because obviously with that, as Scott says, you get a certain, you know, deeper level of insight into, well, this is what happened when I ran the game. This is what the players did, or this is the problems I encountered, or these are the kind of solutions that the, that the, that the scenario presents you. Um, so I think that they're very useful. Um, and so obviously he won't have done masks yet because he hasn't run it yet, but when he does, he says he's going to do it. I, so that would be kind of cool. I'm supposed to be running the Peru chapter for him soon. <laughs> that's, that's very cool. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that, that kind of thing. And certainly, uh, Paul touched upon uh, the Call of Cthulhu starter box set, which is uh, a new, uh, technically a new product we're launching later this year, probably around uh, November time, maybe, maybe uh, late November into December. 
which is a, a, a classic kind of Chaosium box set, uh, kind of a one-inch deep box. And in that is, a, is everything you need to start playing Call of Cthulhu, whether you've never played uh, Call of Cthulhu before, whether you've never role-played before, or whether you played 20 years ago, and you kind of, hey, let's give this a go again, but I've kind of, I've forgotten everything. Um, so um, it will actually talk you through and work through getting you from playing yourself in an individual solo play adventure, choose your own adventure. It will teach you the rules as you go through and it will then hold your hand as you play your and run your first game with maybe one or two people, so your family or friends. And then it will continue holding your hand as you maybe add another person to the group for the second scenario. And it will continue to uh, the, four, the, the, the third scenario in the booklet uh, where you may be playing with a group of four to six people. Um, but the idea is it, it, it will take you from knowing nothing about role playing into being, you know, a confident, you know, Call of Cthulhu keeper. Uh, and comes with a set of dice as well and character sheets and handouts and is really cool. So uh, check it out when it comes. Um, do we have any other questions? We've got a few more minutes. Oh, microphone's on its way. Hi. Um, when you're putting together a scenario, um, do you have a particular way that you structure that that you think is successful? That's a really, really good question. And the question was, how, is there a particular way that we structure a scenario when we're, when we're putting it together? Um, the, an the answer is yes, but everyone will answer it differently. And to give you a demonstration of that, um, <laughs> Scott, would you like to sort of kick that one off? Yeah, I mean, well, there's, there's two different ways of answering that. One is, it, is structuring it in terms of how we run it ourselves and uh, structuring it in terms of how we present it to other people. I mean, looking at it, the first one, yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to have a very different approach than, say, Michael Paul, uh, <clears throat> in that um, very, very few of the scenarios I write are traditional investigative ones. Um, yeah, they, there's, there's a very often a sense of mystery, but I'm, I'm more interested in um, that, that, that sense of horror. So I, I tend to structure it in terms of, you know, here, here is an opening situation that presents the characters with a horrific thing that they've got to resolve. And then, you know, here are some ways we can ratchet up the tension. And then here are some ways that it might resolve. Um, very rarely a prescribed ending. It's more, you know, these are my experiences from having run it. You know, these are ways that you might try to wrap things up yourself. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I tend to you know, look at it more as a, a sort of framework um, around which a story might, might grow. Paul, you, you, you come to it slightly differently. Uh, yeah, I think I would frame it as a bunch of scenes um, that might be played in different orders. Um, and if the players decide to go off and do something different, then we can improvise scenes. But I've kind of got those scenes, if you like, down on the page. So I've got, I'm kind of forearmed, if you like. Um, but ready to improvise if required. When it comes to writing things for publication, the main thing I think is to, to speak to the person reading it and make sure that the story is really clear in the first few paragraphs to the, to the person reading it. I don't want to read something on the page and have to be like an investigator myself and have to try and figure out what's actually going on. As the GM, I want to be able to get a handle on it you know, pretty quickly. 
Yeah, and, and every other writer will tell you something different as well. So it, it's, it's really what works for you. And in terms of, yeah, I, I, I tend to be inside a bit more with Paul in terms of how I do things. Uh, you know, I, I kind of have a, have a structure. But I think the key with when, whenever you're running something, whether it's something you've written yourself or you're picking up one of our books with the scenarios in it and you're running one of those, is, you know, what's written there or the idea you have in, a head, in your head, let it be flexible. Yeah, because ultimately, when the players play the game, it becomes your game and their game. And so they may approach things differently to what we expected them to in, when we wrote it. It may be they may approach it differently to what you expected when you thought the idea and you jotted some ideas down for the game tonight. So just be flexible in your approach. Allow things to, you know, allow things to develop in a certain way, perhaps. Uh, because remember, what it's about is actually this kind of shared sh story experience, which hopefully is fun for all of you. Uh, and, you know, to have a, you know, at the end of the day, you all go, that, that was a great session, we really got into it. And it doesn't really matter if the scenario wasn't quite the one that was rewrote or wasn't quite the one that you had in mind when you sat down tonight, as long as it was cool and you had fun. Um, you know, and sometimes it just goes like that. And other times they do exactly what we thought they would. Right. You know, whatever it may be. Yeah, I, I, I think it's important to remember that a scenario isn't a story, that is a series of tools for creating a story. And you know, a lot of terrible gaming experiences have, that people might have come when someone mistakes it for a story, when they're creating it, because then there's nothing really for the players to do. They're just passive observers, yes. and, and, and that's you know, no fun. You know, you, you, the scenario says they will go through that door, but all the players want to go through that door. Well. <clears throat> let them go through that door because they'll have more fun that way because if you tell them to go through that door they'll, they'll not like it and they won't have fun it's as simple as that so. we have another question I think at the front so um, sorry with Call of Cthulhu being uh, somewhat more lethal than possibly other role playing games if you've got a, a campaign where someone has followed their character through um, up and they've survived several games, um, maybe maybe several. Um, how do you? And then they die. How do you stop them? What do you think is the best way of stopping them, kind of losing a bit of interest in a little bit of investment in the game? Um, I'm going to pass on to the other guys in a minute, but I'm going to tell you two things. One is if if that character's death or exit from the game is memorable and worthwhile, then the player will find it memorable and worthwhile and enjoy it and, and understand it. Yeah? If it's an arbitrary death because they, they managed to roll a one rather than a six on one dice and suddenly their character they've invested two years of their life in is now dead like that, that's a meaningless and worthless exit and I could understand the, character, the player being a bit kind of you know, disengaged from things from that point on. So think about, you know, at the end of the day, character death in terms of the game is in the hands of the players and the keeper. So, you know, you have the full right to say, okay, I know the dice just said that you made a one and you slipped and fell down the bottom of the chasm and you would be dead. I think that's a bit dull. So actually what we'll say is you fell, but you're holding on by a rope, yeah? You're going to give them a chance to kind of, you know, get out of it, but still make it memorable. So I think it's within the bounds of reality, you know, in terms of the game's enjoyment, is to... You know, make sure that they, it's a worthwhile situation. Because it is a horror game, so, you know, they go, players are going into it with the knowledge that their characters can get killed off. 
Um, just as in the end of the role-playing game, if they go and fight the red dragon, it might eat them. You know, so that's okay. Um, and there's always player, player silliness. There are players that will push it and push it. And, and you know, sometimes you know, you, they, need to, you know, they need to see the consequences of action to realize it. But that's kind of one answer, and I'm sure the guys have another, another one as well. The other thing is, if you have that kind of group of players that really want to get invested in the character and, and, and kind of standard Call of Cthulhu, which is quite realistic in its deadliness, you know, if somebody shoots you in the game, you're probably going to die, like in real life. Um, so we have got a kind of an alternate kind of um, system, which is, which is the same system, but with some additional kind of extras called Pulp Cthulhu, where the characters are actually tougher, stronger, and, uh, and more durable, and there are actually mechanics for ensuring they, they don't die necessarily. Uh, there are downsides to it, but there are ways to keep it. But Pulp Cthulhu, for those kind of groups that kind of, kind of want to play it through and don't want to die that often, Pulp Cthulhu is, is very much kind of geared towards that style of play. Paul, do you have anything you want to add? I think I'll just be repeating what you said, Mike, so no, I think... Okay, Scott? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd say that you've always got to remember that as Keeper, you've got control over when you bring, when you bring danger or the risk of death into a game. Um, so, I mean, this, this may be a question of, you know, say, you know, the party's got a lot more battered than you expected. They were going to have an encounter with, you know, say, three ghouls at some stage. You realize, looking at the scenario, that three ghouls now are probably going to tear them apart. So, you know, you make the decision on the fly, okay, actually, it's only one or two of them now. Um, so, you, you've always got control over that. The other is, you've got control over when you call for dice rolls. Uh, you don't always have to um, use the game mechanics in every situation. So let's say that you know someone is trying to get into a country estate by climbing over a brick wall. Uh, you could ask for a climb roll. I mean, they, you know, they, the wall might be 15 feet tall. Uh, there is a minor chance that if you climbed up there and fell off, you could even break your neck and die. So you, you have to ask yourself, is, is that roll going to make the game more fun? So it may be that, yes, you want to add an element of danger here. There's a time pressure. They're being chased by dogs or something worse. And so, yes, you want to have that role. But most of the time, you know, you can just sort of say, okay, you get over the wall. Now what? Um, and, and, you know, then you don't end up with that situation of, of someone breaking their neck, you know, at a really uninteresting part of the game. So if I was to put it another way, Paul, hmm. in Call of Cthulhu, when should I ask the player to make a skill roll? <laughs> when it seems I don't know when it seems appropriate it's a pretty lame answer but um, when something exciting might happen so if you're just driving the car to, to Sainsbury's to get a sandwich you don't need to make a drive skill roll right um, but if you're being chased by somebody through some back streets you know in a you know you're driving and they're chasing behind you then and then there's, you come to a junction, then maybe a drive roll because something exciting could come of that. You know, the people pursuing you could catch you or whatever. So I think the, the main rule is don't roll dice unless this, it feels dramatic. Yeah, and, and I'd add to that, you know, think about, well, both success and failure, as Scott was talking about, you know, if whatever the way this dice goes, if they fail the roll, something happens. If they make the roll, something happens. What you want to try and avoid is the one where, well, if they fail the roll... Or nothing happens. Hmm. Or if they made the role, nothing really happened. That's kind of not, not really dram dramatic, so don't bother making that role. 
make sure something cool happens if they roll a dice. I think he's one of the shorthands to some degree. Not yeah. always the case. But, yeah, as yeah. GM, if you want it to happen, then you, know, you can just say that thing happens. You don't always have to roll for it. I think there were some questions over here near the front. Was there any, any, any hands raised here? Yeah. I think this will have to be the last the question white. as well. That's all right. Hi. Um, basically, what's next for Kula Cthulhu 7th edition? What, what can we look forward to coming out? Sure. Okay, so uh, what we've got coming out, so um, as I've mentioned, we've got Masks of Nathatech, the big campaign coming out. It's the next big thing out. That's followed by the Call of Cthulhu starter box set. Uh, but the works we have currently in production at the moment, uh, we have a follow-up to Down Darker Trails, which is the, the Call of Cthulhu setting in the Wild West uh, in the kind of late 1800s America, um, and we have a book called um, Shad The Shadow Over Stillwater, which is uh, basically a, a collection of scenarios for the Wild West kind of setting. Uh, of those, um, there is a kind of a, a mini campaign set over three scenarios, and then there's an additional scenario as well. Uh, and um, they kind of all take place in the kind of uh, New Mexico kind of territory. So uh, uh, I've just finished kind of editing those at the moment. We're just going into kind of developing some art and maps for that. The book we currently have in layout, which is kind of the one that will go to print next, is Secrets of Australia, which we otherwise call Terra Australis, which is a, um, a complete kind of uh, revision, revamp, enhancement, development of the very, very old book that was called Terra Australis. So we have a whole source book around the Australian continent, including Tasmania, um, where you uh, have uh, details about Australia in the 1920s, uh, role-playing Australian characters, um, scenarios, brand new scenarios, lots of background, a lot of history, weird Australia as well. We have a lot of stuff about um, uh, Aboriginal Australians in there in terms of... Uh, uh, the kind of the, the dreaming or the dream time of Alcharinga, depending on how you want to describe it. Um, so we have lots of material coming out in that uh, Australia book. Um, and the other book uh, we currently uh, uh, just finished editing is a book called Secrets of Berlin, which is um, a really cool book set in 1920s Berlin. So the Weimar Republic. So it's a period between near the 1920 before the start of the Second World War and the kind of, you know, and uh, the kind of latter heart of the kind of the rise of Hitler and so on. But this is all kind of pre, pre that um, with the, you know, the kind of cabaret, nightclubs, the kind of Berlin is this kind of bursting metropolis of, of new art and expression of which is, you know, a hotbed of kind of occult belief and secret societies and political machinations. So that's, uh, those are the kind of the ones, you know, most recently uh, kind of on their way out, as it were. Um, we've got plenty of others, but, um, but they're the ones I you know, mentioned now. But I think we are just at, yep. just at time. So can I say thanks very much for everyone coming. Uh, thanks to Scott and Paul for joining me. Um, if you want to talk to us more, we're, we're around, well, I'm sitting around all weekend. Mark and uh, Paul and Scott are around today. Uh, we're kind of hanging out in the demonstration room just there. Uh, and we're running one-hour games, one-hour demonstration games of Call of Cthulhu. And also the other game Kersim does, which is RuneQuest. Uh, and um, come along, sign up. Play for an hour, get a taste for the game if you've never played before. If you've played before and you want something to do, come and join us as well. Okay, so thanks very much.
Yeah, I, I thought that was a, a fun seminar to do. Thank you very much to everyone who turned out and, and asked us questions. Um, we, we hope we answered them to your satisfaction. And if any of the rest of you would like to ask us any questions or contact us or anything like that, the best thing to do is go to blasphemoustomes.com, where you can find links to our various social media presences. But we can be found on Twitter at goodfriendsofje. Uh, we can be found on Google+, Plus at least until it shuts down, uh, uh, for the Good Friends of Jackson Lives community. And we have a Facebook page as well, oddly enough, called the Good Friends of Jackson Lives. And we would love to hear from you. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous tomes?